Hi, welcome to the workshop Sexuality. My name is Judy from Palm Springs, and I am a compulsive overeater and the moderator speaker for this session. Hi. Before we begin, please turn off your cell phones. This workshop is being taped. All opinions expressed by those who share are their own and not necessarily those of OA as a whole. The format for this session is a reading, three speakers, and ask it basket questions. A basket with paper and pencil will be circulated for you to write any questions you may have for the speakers. Please specify whom your question is for. The reading is from the big book, page 69, appropriately enough. (laughs) Paragraphs 1 and 2. Do we have a volunteer to read? Great. Come on up. Hi, my name is Ellie, compulsive overreader. Hey. Beautiful, thanks. Uh, this is from the big book. Then we have the voices who cry for sex and more sex, who bewail the institution of marriage, who think that most of the troubles of the race are traceable to sex causes. They think we do not have enough of it or that it isn't the right kind. They see its significance everywhere. One school would allow man no flavor for his fare, and other would have us all on a straight pepper diet. We want to stay out of this controversy. We do not want to be the arbitrator of anyone's sex conduct. We all have sex problems. We'd hardly be human if we didn't. What can we do about them? We reviewed our conduct of the years past. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate? Whom had we hurt? Did we unjustifiably arouse jealousy, suspicion, or bitterness? Where were we at fault? What should we have done instead? We got this all down on paper and looked at it. Thank you very much. Um, I will now speak for 20 to 25 minutes. And could someone please be a timer? Great. So if you show us when it's five minutes and then hold up the stop sign. Can we make it 25 and at 20 you'll give me the five? Is that okay? Okay. As I said, my name is Judy. I am a compulsive overeater. I live in Palm Springs, and I'd like to give you my phone number if anyone wants to talk about this further. My number is 760-322-0388, 760-322-0388. And the reason I give you my number is because I think this is like the most important part of our recovery. Not most important, but very, 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 very important. Uh, I've been in recovery for a very long time. Uh, more than half my life now, and uh, I didn't know that these issues would be as as big as they are. You know, we hear a lot in today's society about the mind-body split, and and I believe that this is where we integrate ourselves in a very beautiful spiritual way. At least that's happened for me and and people that I work with. Um, you know, 
both eating and sexuality are the only two areas of our life where we're still allowed to be an animal. You know, everything else is in the head. And our society is major head. And, and major not present. You know, we're, we're texting or we're uh, on the phone or we're very rarely where we need to be. And in both the act of eating and in the act of making love, I have need, I've had to learn how to become more mindful more grounded, and more present. And in both of those experiences, to the degree that I don't do that, I tend to move to excess, to lack of intention, to being flayed and hysteric, which is how I got here 34 years ago, and obese. Um, So it it really ain't easy. It's a very big issue. Uh, Yeah, it's about pleasure. That's great. Uh, You know, in our big book and our suggested program of recovery, uh, they tell us that the entire program is suggested, except for one line. There's one line in the big book that isn't a suggestion. It says, we absolutely insist on enjoying life. And a lot of people in today's society, as much as there's wanton sexuality and displaying it everywhere, Uh, We're very much into not having pleasure, uh, not indulging the senses, but restriction. And uh, in both my eating plan and my sexual plan, I don't believe in restriction. I believe in savoring and sucking life dry. (laughs) I, I came here to be a spiritual adult and a sensuous woman. And I continue to become that as I shed all the other things that got me here, those ways of being. So I always say reach for yourself instead of the shelf. Or reach for your mate instead of the plate. You know, why do we think it's more appropriate to grab a donut than to take care of that energy? And it is all about energy and both releasing energy and recharging energy. Um, you know, one line I like is Sheer Height. She says, uh, uh, for women, sexuality is, is sex the woman, is sex the man penetrating the woman or the woman enveloping the man? Uh, just to bring up the issues about power, you know, what power is really going on? And let's face it, those of us in these rooms are really afraid of our power. We're afraid of our sexual power. We're afraid of any power. So we eat to sublimate that. And when I first started in abstinence, November 22nd, 1974, I needed to do the M word about five times a day. Seriously. Because I was just, I was a nervous wreck. And I got to find out how many times I used to grab for the shelf instead of myself. So I recommend that highly. And that's why, that's why I gave my phone number out early here. It's not, you know, I'm not a porno queen, and I'm, I'm not a, you know, deviant sexual personality, but I really champion and applaud and uh, want to encourage women in this program. Men, I can't help you. You've got to do your own thing. <laughs> I've got only one man I'm, I'm working on with that. But, uh, but for women who really want to address those issues, we've got to have somewhere. I've been really concerned in recent years at how much of sexuality and recovery have been workshops about the negative part of things, uh, about incest, about rape, about closing down. 
and there are very few places where we can talk about opening up and flowering into that because historically uh, societies have really put down the sexuality of women. Theodore Reich said marriage was created for the sexual repression of women. Uh, and there are all kinds of stories about the insatiable female. You know, we have this word, nymphomaniac. Nymphomaniac. We don't have a similar word for men who really enjoy sexuality. That's not a deviant thing. But for women, if you like it too much, you are a problem, sister. Sit down. You know, in this United States of America, it was 1947, not that long ago, 1947, that we had our last clitoroidectomy. That means the uh, cutting off of the clitoris. By the way, the clitoris is the, on the only known function for the clitoris is the pleasure of woman. It has no other uh, function. Uh, that clitoroid ectomy was performed on a five-year-old girl. Why? Excessive masturbation. Who decides? Who tells us when enough is enough? Just like our abstinence has to become a personal issue that we negotiate with our sponsors, also, our sexuality, has to, we have to own it and celebrate it. So, by the way, also in 1947, there was a child-rearing manual that talked about the role of fathers in bringing up children. And it said one of the greatest things a father can do for his children is to create the sexual satisfaction of his wife that when that issue is not attended to properly, the woman acts out in over-attachment with the children rather than with her marriage partner. And we've all read enough recovery books, I guess, about triangulation and all that power struggle that goes on. I certainly lived that in my life. And uh, most people I know who really talk honestly in this program address those issues. So... Um, like I say, early on, I uh, very much took care of things myself. Uh, I was married at the time to a practicing alcoholic who used to beat me periodically. And I usually thought that was my fault. Uh, that shouldn't have been so much up in his face. It was always issues about power. If you think about it, you know, we're so ravenous. We're going for fueling, aren't we? Because we're so conflicted in those powerful areas. And I can remember the last time I was beaten. I remember standing in the kitchen in San Pedro, California, and I picked up a, a wooden chopping block, and I just smashed it and smashed it and smashed it on the counter, broken many pieces, all shredded little splinters, and I turned to him and I said, nobody will ever hit me again. And I could feel every capillary and every corpuscle in my body vibrating that message. And it was only because of being abstinent and becoming aware of what my body felt like and who I was and where my power was that I eventually and gradually could come to that statement. So, you know, people tell us all kinds of things, you know, leave the SOB and do this and do that. And by the way, we do know that women who leave a batterer, often that's when he really acts out and can kill them. So don't be given advice on those issues. 
we will know in our bodies, our bodies will lead the way. And that's the reason I like to eat moderately today, is so that this vessel can be a tuning fork. It's, it's kind of half full most of the time, so she can feel her vibrations, and she knows what's her true north, and she knows if, hmm, you feel a little funny to me, the hairs are standing up on my arm, I think I'll walk down this street instead. I can feel it. I know what's right. But when I'm eating compulsively, I can sleep around excessively too, which I've had my bouts with that in this program as well. Uh, I used to date people I wouldn't take out in public. Um, and that is because I was dis- so disowned in my own sexuality that I needed to explore my dark side with either pimps on 42nd Street in New York, which is 46th Street actually, um, which were always entertaining, but I was always going to the edge to my darkest side. Even when I first worked in drug addiction treatment in New York City for Phoenix House, I would date the patients at night. I was nuts. I had this one professional image, you know, with my nice little suit, and I had this whole other part of myself. And, uh, you know, I'm not the first or only one, so uh, I'm sure we could tell a lot of great stories. Um, I don't regret any of it. It was very interesting and a very exciting life, and I'm glad that I made it out alive. Uh, I have woken up in blackouts with guns pointed at me that I'd obviously offended someone. <laughs> you know, and I, I live to tell the tale, uh, but I'm glad that none of those things happened today. Um, today I've been for 13 years with a very nice Jewish boy. Uh, I'm learning how to have sex with my own kind. Uh, you know, Gloria Steinem, when they asked her why she didn't want to get married, she said, because I can't mate it in captivity. <laughs> so she had eventually got married for the first time at age 65. Uh, this week was my birthday, and for part of that, last night uh, we went to the Hollywood Bowl to see Aretha Franklin. Did anyone else go? Well, I must say I was very disappointed. And uh, actually, I wrote a book about sexuality and, and eating, and, and one of the lines in there was from a reviewer who said, Aretha Franklin makes uh, salvation sound like sex and sex sound like salvation. And she was that for me for many years. I love going to black churches and gospel music and blues music and it. It vibrates on me. It's, it's my wavelength. Uh, but the concert last night reminded me of what's wrong with so much sexuality. It's like there was no connection. Uh, she was up there wailing, and she's gotten very, very heavy, by the way. Unbelievable. More than ever, ever. But you used to feel her being in the music. And, and I was thinking of like when I took acting classes many years ago. Actually, no, it was a play I was in. And it was a scene about crying. And the director said, uh, you know, your job is not to get you to cry. It's to get the audience to cry. So whatever, you know, sometimes it is more provocative for you to be withholding your crying and channeling it than to be having your cathartic experience on stage, you know. So that's what it felt like last night at this concert is that, she was up there having her experience, 
But it used to be that she was grounded, for me anyway, grounded in the music so that her interest was in you, the audience, having the experience rather than, hey, look at me, I'm a diva. There's a, a very slight energy difference. I think those of us with food issues, we sense those kind of energy differences. Uh, I think most of the people there last night really enjoyed the concert. It just left me cold. And my partner as well, which is kind of cool that we have this similar vibratory connection. So that issue about vibration is really important in sexuality. You know, when you're hot, you're hot. And when you're not, you're not. You know, when I was eating, I could talk myself into all kinds of different escapades. But now my body will tell me when you're hot, you're hot. When you're not, you're not. And it has to do with that kind of connection. It's either there or it isn't. Uh, Can we connect on a vibratory level? You see, when I was sleeping with no good guys, we connected on a vibratory level. That's who I was then. I remember going to my therapist for years and complaining about my dating life and the kind of guys I was with, and I'm still only attracting alcoholics, and on and on and on. And he said, we choose who we are. I didn't want to hear that. That's not me. That doesn't mirror me. Well, we do choose who we are. And, uh, you know, sometimes you'll look at somebody and say, what does she see in him? Right? But it's what does he bring out in her? You know, who can I be with you? Can I be seen? Intimacy is into me see. Passionate. I pass on eat or I eat my passion. So, I know I'm throwing out a lot of these kind of one-liners to be provocative, but it's because I'm, I'd love to have more stimulation in this area, more discussion. Uh, I worked in the treatment field for many years, and, uh, and I saw what happened in about the 1980s. The insurance companies started cracking down, maybe 85. I've been at it a long time. But the insurance companies started cracking down on payment for treatment. So they would say things like, uh, we want to see suicidality, and we want to see more trauma to justify this hospitalization. So then counselors went to weekend workshops on rape and incest. Rape and incest was best. Because if you put that in the chart, <laughs> nobody wanted to ask any questions about it. They just took your word for it, you see. So it was very subtle. There was kind of a witch hunt toward bong, bong. If we hear those words, that's a good word. We'll put that in the chart and we'll get paid for it. Now, I'm not saying it went deviously like that and I'm not, you know, but it was quite subtle. Uh, I remember once in staffing, the counselor said to me about the patient, uh, well, this person's uh, an incest survivor. I said, well, what does that mean? She said, well, you know, she's an incest survivor. I said, well, how did you learn that? She said, well, she told me on admission. It's in the chart. I said, and what did she mean when she said that? Because everybody was saying that at that particular wave. And uh, because it, it was kind of, who is sicker than thou? That was a good one, because no one asked further questions. So I said, go back and ask her further questions. Find out what's happened. 
and how she felt about it and what was going on. So, as it turned out in that case anyway, what she described as incest was something that a counselor had told her was incest. And what it was is that her dad used to walk in the living room with his jockey shorts on. Now, that could be incestuous. And it could be that she felt it as incest, and it could have been a real violation, all of that. But it depends how that person responded to that. And I have concerns about it because then there's other people who really had some horrific things happen to them that also fit in that same category called incest. And I don't want to diminish their experience by saying this one is the same. You know what I mean? So... All I'm saying is there's been all this talk in recovery about our being sex addicts or our being survivors and victims. Uh, and if we do have power, we've gone over the mark. Wow, one minute. Well, I'm done. Oh, I'm sorry. oh. <laughs> okay, five minutes. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Okay, uh, well, it's been great. Thank you. I had a good time. Did you? <laughs> have a cigarette? <laughs> but um, I, I guess I'd, I'd just like to close with, you know, anything goes. I, uh, you know, the more we can liberate ourselves and open up in this area um, and really realize, at least for women, that it's issues about penetration and vulnerability and openness. And it's, it's serious material. It's serious stuff, you know. Just like with eating, I allow the outside into the boundaries of my temple. Okay? Food is even more intimate because I use my own juices to break it down and make new parts of me. Uh, but it's all intimate. So I think I'll just uh, read this little poem uh, to close. You know, I, uh, I came up in the... Uh, in the era where, you know, uh, there was a lot of uh, swinging and free love, that whole kind of issue going on. And uh, now they don't even give it a name. <laughs> it's just what is. But in my day, these were crossing over to new behaviors and new areas. And uh, so one of our champions for women in that era was Erica Jong, who wrote the book Fear of Flying. And she wrote about the zipless F. And uh, really what that was, was that you were riding on a train and a mysterious dark stranger got on the train and the train went through a tunnel and you got it on and then you came out the other side and just adjusted your clothing. And it was called the zipless because there were no bra straps to unhook and no pants to unzip. It was just, you know, Uh, and that's what we all longed for in one way or another. But... uh, she also wrote this little poem that I really like. I'm not against marriage, by the way, but uh, another thing, just like with eating, we have to try to make each bite the first time. With sexuality, we need to try, you know, uh, Pat Love, who does sexuality workshops, says that most women report that it's that initial penetration that's the most exciting part of lovemaking, not the end result, because you can really get that anywhere. And sometimes it's... Uh, better by yourself to tell you the truth <laughs> but it's that that connection you know that whoa you know so anyway I, I just sort of like this oh by the way just one other thing uh, James Thurber wrote a little thing about sexuality oh shoot I think I forgot the page 
Oh no. Ask me later, or email me, and I'll and I'll send it to you. But anyway, here's Erica Jong's poem. What was it about marriage anyway? Even if you loved your husband, there came that inevitable year when effing turned as bland as Velveeta. As Velveeta cheese, filling, fattening, but no thrill to the taste buds. No bittersweet edge, no danger. And you longed for an overripe camembert. A rare goat cheese, luscious, creamy, cloven hoof. Thanks. Okay, and our second speaker is Corey from West Hollywood. Is that right? Corey from Culver City, who will speak for 20 to 25 minutes. Hi, I'm Corey, and I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, Corey. It's funny. They have me from West Hollywood and Terrell from Palm Springs when Judy's actually from Palm Springs, and so uh, just a little tidbit of information that you don't probably need. But um, I was thinking I, uh, I read the, these couple of paragraphs a thousand times thinking about what on earth can I talk for 20 to 25 minutes without two paragraphs of um, the sex, the, the small portion of sex stuff in the big book. And um, thank you, by the way, Judy, for your share. Um, uh, the first thing that I was thinking about is, is how, I don't know if this happens in other areas, but in L.A., Lots of times people will make a comment like, I'd rather tell you what I do sexually than what I eat. And I think, well, okay, that's those two things. Number one, that, that I'm more ashamed about what I eat. And number two, that sex is up there, too, to tell you about sexuality must be really up there if the only thing that trumps it for a compulsive overeater is food and um, what I had for dinner last night. So I'm not going to tell you about either. But... Um, <laughs> But, but know that they're both pregnant in my life. Um, I, uh, well, one of the things that I love, I, have, I, I used to go to a meeting on Sunday night years and years ago in Culver City um, when I didn't live there. And um, it was a sexuality meeting, a co-ed sexuality meeting on Sunday nights. And, um, it, and it was wonderful. And it, it, not everyone talked about sex, but we read this portion of it. And the thing that I loved about it when I was struggling so much with my sexuality and who was I as a as a being in the world and um, and all the shame that I had learned and then I don't know that I was taught to have shame about sex but somewhere along the way in the things that I was taught about sex I I picked up that it was very shameful and um, and I, the, the thought and it's just before the paragraphs that we um, were asked to speak on but the thought that most of us it says most of us needed an overhauling there and I thought oh thank God. I'm not the only one that needs to be overhauled. Thank God, other, like they, they must write about this for some reason because white men in the 30s, like it was an issue even for them, you know, and, and so, um, and then in the portion that we read, it, it, that we're speaking on, it says, we all have sex problems, we'd hardly be human if we didn't. And there was such a freedom for me in that. And it, it didn't, um, it wasn't the only thing that provided me with freedom in, in the sexual arena, and I think it's a journey and I'm somewhere on it, but um, it really was validating to know that part of being human is part of struggling with all of this stuff. I mean, I think. It's my philosophy, and we all come from different places with that, but I think that life sometimes is about struggling, and it's about it, it's not about how much do we struggle, but how do we meet the struggle, and how do we transcend it, and how do we be with that, and how do we have integrity in all of our affairs? Um, and then the second paragraph that, that they asked us to review was um, 
about reviewing our own sex conduct. And I love that because it's, it's the fourth step and then it starts to just touch on the sixth step, which is, well, what are my character defects? And, and I, um, as I said, I, um, I had a lot of shame about sex. And I, I think there were a couple of reasons for that. I think number one, that I, um, it was late in, later in my life, I'm mean, only 43, but for, so far as being on this planet, it was, um, I, I started realizing that I had sexual feelings before I even had a word lesbian. Um, and so that was part of it for me, that I had attractions and I thought that they were wrong. Um, and that's not about 12 steps, but that's a part of my story. Um, and I, so I started having feelings and I had attractions for teachers and all of my, friends would have attractions for all the, you know, for the male teachers that were cute, and I found myself feeling attractions for teachers, and I couldn't talk about it, and um, I didn't have any role models growing up. Um, well, one time, we were, I grew up in Beverly Hills, and we were in West Hollywood, and we were at this place called the Sundance Cafe that used to be kind of near the log cabin on Robertson, if anyone knows that area, and my, my brother and I saw two men kissing, and um, they they noticed that we saw them kissing, and then they started really kissing, and my brother and I just worked. We just loved it. It just was, you know, and, and then it was sort of fascinating, and now I think back, and I think it's beautiful, because there were, that wasn't my experience growing up, um, kind of in a somewhat conservative family, um, and I got to watch people sharing love on the street, and it happened to be two men, and it was great for me as I started in my coming out process years later just to see that it's possible to have freedom around that. And when I realized, um, when I realized, I started to realize because I, I think a lot of it was going to meetings where I had friends who were out, both men and women, and I started to realize that they were very comfortable with themselves and it was possible for me to learn to be comfortable with that if that was something, um, if that really was the truth for me. And um, so I don't know how I got off on that tangent, but... Um, but sexuality and owning my sexuality. And, and I, I ate so much over my sexual shame. I, um, I, the first time I ever had a sexual experience was with a man, and I cried afterwards. And I, I, I didn't know that it was okay to cry. And I didn't know that it was okay to have really conflicted feelings. And I love what you said about penetration. Really conflicted feelings about what that experience was for me. And... Um, I still sometimes have big feelings come up. And I think the difference is after having years in program, I've been in program for, I think it's almost 20 years. I think August will be 20 years since my first Al-Anon meeting, and then about nine months later I got to OA. Um, I, I learned, like, uh, it's part of the spiritual experience for me anyway that I, um, I remember telling somebody once, I, I feel angry, but I don't know if I have a right to feel angry. And it was someone else in program, and she said, you don't need to have a right to feel angry. Like, you, you you have a right to feel whatever you feel. You you know, you have to be careful how you express it, and we have certain things that we need to be careful of in the world. And I wasn't that kind of person that would, and I wasn't a rager or anything, but I, um, I believed that I needed to have a right to feel angry in order to feel angry. And so when I had that first experience and I felt sad, I I, I didn't understand why I felt sad, and did I have a right to feel sad. And so I... I didn't share that, and it, it was the beginning of, it was like a month into a relationship that lasted for two years and probably should have been over in a month and a day, you know, but um, I I didn't feel comfortable and safe enough to share that because I thought that, um, I thought that if I really shared 
what I thought I didn't have a right to feel, that the other person would go away. And I think one of the things that I've learned over the years in program, um, by learning more about myself and doing all of these things, the sixth and seventh step and particularly those things, was that um, that people may leave, but that I can't be abandoned. You know what I mean? Like, I, I mean, you, you could leave and I may feel abandoned, but really if I... If I retain myself, I, I'm going to be okay. So anyway, so, so I thought, you know, when I didn't cry in front of him that first time, um, I thought uh, if I did that, he would go away and then I wouldn't be okay. And I think that probably was the truth back then because I didn't have enough of myself really to be able to hold on to that. Um, so I feel like I'm like way off in left field. i got to bring myself back. Um, so it, it talks here about... Um, we reviewed our conduct over the past years, and I was I was thinking about how, you know, the way this is written, it, it could be, you know, they think we do not have enough of it or that it wasn't the right kind. Like, that could describe dinner last night, you know. <laughs> like, have you, ever, have you ever gone to a place and you're like, boy, I wish I had what she had. That looks great. I should have gotten the turkey burger, you know, and I thought, isn't that so interesting? It's all just metaphorical. I mean, and there are things about it that are different, but... Um, but my, uh, I think my sexual, not I think, I know my sexuality definitely mirrored my food in, in restriction. Thank you for talking about that. And, um, and I mean, I don't know that I ever overindulged in sexuality, but I felt like I did. I felt like, um, especially, um, especially with myself, I felt like it wasn't okay. And I, I don't know where I got that from. I didn't, my family didn't. You know, we didn't, they didn't talk about sex, about it being evil. I didn't come from that kind of a religion. I, we were Jews. We just felt guilty about it. But it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't wrong to feel bad for, for all, you know, for all of it. And, and if you're a walking shame spiral, then you are a good Jew. So, um, not to get, you know, religious. And I love being a Jew, by the way, so I'm not bashing the Jewish religion. But I, uh, but somewhere along the way, I, I picked up a lot of shame about, Sex. And so what I would do when I felt, when I, when I enjoyed sex, whether there was someone else present or not, um, <laughs> oftentimes would eat, be to eat over it and to be, um, to indulge it in other ways. And I, and I think it's absolutely, I think it was said a little bit earlier, but there, there was a definite, for me, a definite correlation between if I indulged in one arena, there was definitely an indulgence in another. And, and I, I, I think that that's also metaphorical for enjoying life and for you know everything, and and um, it's I I notice now in my life, and I'm I'm in a relationship, and we're very happy, and I, I want to say we work at it, but that sounds so hard. It's it's not. I mean, it's really it's like we just sort of deal with what comes up, and um, and I had a point, and I just completely lost it. <laughs> That's what being in love will do. <laughs> um, <laughs> I uh, huh, sex, living together relationship um being hungry yeah i'm feeling a little hungry at this moment <laughs> okay um anyway so i one of the things that i that i also know is that um and it's funny and, and they say stick to the topic and here's these two little paragraphs and most of what i'm going to say isn't at all talking specifically about the paragraph but it's my story and um i uh one of the things that I learned somewhere, and I don't know where, and I've done inventories, but somewhere I learned that I need to figure out what you want me to be 
in in order to it was like it was like survival for me like I just thought I didn't even know who I was or what I wanted and and I that transcended all of my areas of my life that transcended friendships and it you know it was um it, it was an all everything and so who do you want me to be in order to and I could figure it out and um I hadn't planned on telling my coming out story, but I'll just tell a little bit about it. When I was in college, and like I said, I, um, I, and I was, I wasn't in program yet. It was, it was kind of the precursors to getting in a program. Um, and I had a roommate, and we uh, had a relation. We had, we started having a relationship, and and I, and and yet she was a roommate, and it was a woman, and I thought, wow, well, this is great. So I just got to find a man that makes me feel this great, and then. And then I'll be okay because then my father will see that I'm okay. And um, I went home and uh, didn't share with my father, but it, she came home with me uh, at the. We lived in different parts of the state, and she came home with me. And um, and and you know how you can tell when their people are together. You just get an energy about you. And and uh, my father said to me, she had gone to sleep, and he said to me, um, "Are you uh, and so and so together? Are you lovers?" And and I adamantly denied it in that way that an addict can do where you know there's so much truth to it. I can't believe you would think I ate the Twinkies. I don't even like Twinkies, you know, like that way. So <clears throat> whether you have a coming out story or not, you relate to the Twinkies, right? And, and I, um, and, and I, and that was the beginning, really sadly, the beginning of the end of that relationship because my father didn't agree and he didn't approve. And he, I got this long story about, he said, you know, because I was going to school in Humboldt County, which is a really little town in Northern California, in a little town called Arcata, which is, there's a university there and not much else to do but eat and drink and um, watch movies and then go back to the dorms and smoke pot. So, um, <laughs> and I never did smoke pot, but I did get really drunk and I ate a lot of food and um, passed out a lot from under eating. I'm uh, also a type 1 diabetic and um don't starve if you're diabetic on insulin because it just doesn't work out well. But it never did for me. And it, it yeah, so, um, and it wasn't fun. But I, um, my father gave me this story about how he said, you know, sometimes when you, when you live places where there aren't really a lot of options, you, and he, and he said it as if he were, I, I think my father thought he was channeling Freud. Like he just, he was very intellectual and he was very, like, used all his lingo. You know, sometimes we, we make choices and um, we think that maybe they're the only available choices and um, and yet they're not. And so we, you know, and, and I um, and I knew he was wrong. And it was almost like I was sleeping with a cow or something like that. It was almost like, you know, we make choices on the farm. <laughs> and it just was, that's how it felt to me. And it was like, and now I think back, you know, when I live in L.A., like in Culver City and we're close to West Hollywood and like, and, and this is the 2000s, and, and I like to think at least maybe in L.A. County that things were very different than even back then in the 80s. And um, and it was so, am I getting close to time or anything? Okay. Um, and, uh, and, I, and, and the sad part is, and also there was a lot of food involved subsequently to this interaction. The sad part was that that became my truth. Not, not that... You know, because I was that I was making poor choices, but I started somewhere in me, and I didn't think, oh, my father thinks that this isn't okay, so it must not be okay. But somewhere in me, it slowly changed where I thought this isn't okay. What I'm doing is wrong, and then then I had a lot of shame about it, and I 
Um, and then I, you know, and then I had a relationship with a man and thought, oh, I'm fixed. Here he is. Poor guy. <laughs> you know, that's a lot to put on someone's shoulders. And, um, and we're Facebook friends now. <laughs> and um, I hear he stopped dating lesbians, which probably was more successful for him because he has two little girls. And, um, and uh, I know my own kind. And, on the, and, and the pictures on Facebook, she doesn't look like one of us. But um, I, uh, and I thought I was fixed. And, um, and, and, and I guess to relate it back to this, when I did my fourth step and I did my sixth and seventh step, there's so much in my, of what came out of my fourth step and what I had to work on in six and seven was about people pleasing. And it was about people pleasing and then resenting and then eating over my resentment. Because, I mean, the, the book tells us that, that, that resentments are our number one offenders. For me, I've never found a way out of a resentment. Well, there's two ways out of a resentment. There's prayer. Right, which is the 12-step way of prayer and talking about it and doing the things that we do and sharing about it and working with others and all of those tools. Or for me, there's acting out of my addiction. And um, and for me, that's food. It was other things, but it really it's food. I mean, sometimes it's money and, you know. And, um, and then so years later, when I was in meetings in the LA Intergroup and I started to make friends, and I was very... Um, it scared me to be around other women who were gay. And I remember I had this therapist who I thought maybe possibly was gay, and I couldn't see her anymore because she might see in me that that was my truth. And um, and I started to have friends in program. And I um, and I had this one friend in program who shared with me that she was gay, and she invited me to this meeting to come and speak. And it was a meeting. It was a women's tag, and it was a lesbian meeting. And I, and I started to get in touch with who I was. And, and in some ways it also was like, Oh, they say it's okay, so it's okay. So it sort of started out like that, but I started to really get in touch with um, that it's okay. Like, if I'm not gay, that's okay. If I am gay, that's okay. It's not about, like, what's okay and what's not okay. It's, it's more about, like, who am I really? And um, and I have to say, when I think about it that way, and even thinking about it now, that decision back then, like, viscerally, it just feels like so much is lifted off my shoulders. Like, I don't have to figure out... What does the world think is okay? Although there happens to be a lot of the world doesn't think that this is okay. But um, but at this point, you know, screw them because it, because it is what it is, and it is. And, and now I and I really enjoy who I am, and I really um, yeah. So anyway, so I started coming out. I did like a boatload of dating and um, and learned a lot of things about myself, and um, got to practice character defects all over the place, and then. <laughs> learn about myself and lots and lots of I, I uh, lots of ego and um, and then having to make amends sometimes living amends sometimes going back to people and saying I'm so sorry about that not not I'm sorry but just I'm sorry and um, yeah so where am I going with this all I am um, Dating. All right. So, yeah, I did a boatload of this. Sorry, I'm getting all distracted. But um, I learned a lot about myself. I learned um, – I, I think one of the things that that program has taught me and that I've – it took me a while to learn because I'm kind of a slow learner is that um, I, I can't read a book about dating or about being sexually present or and and sit on the couch and read it and then think that – I'm going to be able to go out in the world and now have this knowledge because I've read about it, because I've studied about it, right? I, I had to go out there and um, I remember telling one of my sponsors that um, I said, 
you know, I, I don't, I don't want to date because I don't want to get my heart broken. And my sponsor said, well, maybe you have to go out and get your heart broken open so that you can be present out there. And I loved that. And I um, have shared that with my sponsees and people in the world that seek my guidance. And um, I had to be willing to take that risk. And I, and I, I had to be willing, like I, I can't, and I can't even just be free of my character defects. I can't even know what my character defects are sometimes until I play them out in the world and then get to heal them and repair them and make amends for them. And, um, and I have five minutes. Oh, thank God it's almost over. <laughs> um, I'm usually, uh, like, I usually could speak for years. I don't know what it is about this topic, but, um, <laughs> I, uh, yeah. Um, Yeah, so get my heart broken open, and and that I did, and I, um, I mean it it really helps my my partners in program, and it really helps to have that common language, and um, I think what happens, I and I love what was said, I I um, we choose who we are, and I heard water rises to its own level, and I, in my dating world, and some some of my ego, my huge ego that I didn't think I had when I came in, I really didn't think I had ego. I think I, I thought I was one of the people that had so little ego that I was going to be famous for it, you know, like that kind of that kind of no ego. And um, you're going to think, wow, she is so amazing. She has no ego. And I was just waiting for that to happen, and it never did. And then I had to deal with my ego, and now I want it less, you know, that adoration, but um, ego. And I um, oh, I just lost my train of thought. Ego, ego, ego. Hmm. Anyway, so I was, I was, um, does anyone remember what I was saying before I got derailed on ego? I'm not important enough for you all to remember what I was saying. I'm kidding. Um, yeah. Heartbreaking open, rising, water rising to its own level. That's what I was thinking about. Yeah, yeah, and ego. Um, and I don't think I'm going to listen to this tape. Usually I rush out to listen to myself. <laughs> All over the place. So, um, water rising to its own level. Um, yeah, that's what I was thinking about. I, I did a lot of dating, and I, I did, um, I, I, and, and I had, God bless them, I had gentle sponsors over the years, but I would call and say, oh, no, there won't be a second date. Too sick for me. You know, or, oh, uh, yeah, we dated for three months, but, you know, she's just, just too needy for me. And, I did some writing one time on the direction of my sponsor and um, about what it's like. And my sponsor said something like, you seem to have an issue being needed. And certainly, you don't, you know, one doesn't want to be with anyone who's too needy. Like, that's, you know, that certainly sounds pathological. But let's not over-pathologize something that might be your issue, right, which is, goes back to six and seven. And, um, and what I realized is, if you have a need to know me, I felt like that was too needy. If, if you want in... I pushed you away, and I did that a lot. And, and not only that, but I was kind enough to say that you were too sick for me. And I mean, I didn't say that to people, but I was kind enough to think that, you know. And um, and what I really had to get in touch with, it, it, for for me, was that um, that intimacy issues, like it, in a in a relationship with somebody else, where there are intimacy issues. I think, at least in my experience, or like to say codependent doesn't mean that one person's codependent. Like, people will say they're codependent on me, and I just think, 
no, codependent takes two people. <laughs> and, um, but I was great at saying you are sick and I am healthy and I have no ego either. So, um, and then somewhere along the line, and I remember, and, and I won't say, honey, I won't say too much about us, but I remember um, when we were dating early on, someone cut us off in traffic. And, and everyone has their own personal way of handling that. And my partner is very passionate in traffic when people cut her off. And, and I remember my first thought was, oh, my God, she's angry. And then my second thought was, and so are you, Corey. You just express it differently. You, I mean, I might go home and do, thank you, I have one minute. I might go home and do something else about it. But it, it wasn't, and I might not be that demonstrative with my feelings like that in that, in that situation. But in other situations, I've got my own stuff, and it's no less, you know, it, it's no, no less pretty, no more pretty. And, um, yeah, so anyway, I'm kind of all over the place with all this, but, um, but that's my story. And, and I'll just end with what I started with, which is the, the freedom that we'd hardly be human if we didn't have issues around sexuality and around the way that for compulsive overeaters, food interacts with sexuality and and how hungry we get and that hunger in all those areas and you talked about it Judy about um, hunger for sexuality yet we feel hungry for food and um, one of my therapists once said but what are you really hungry for and I just thought oh F you (laughs) you know I'll tell you and um, and I wasn't at all hungry for whatever I thought it was and um, and it was you know it was really a hunger for intimacy and to be connected and um, yeah, and and so is that. That's it. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Corey. Our third speaker will be Carol from West Hollywood. Can you pass the basket basket so it makes it up front again, please? Thanks. Hi, I'm Carol. I'm a compulsive reader. And when the committee asked me to speak on this topic, I thought, please no. No. I'll speak on anything else. I, 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 steps one and two and three. That sounds like a wonderful thing. I'd love to talk on that. You know, and I even emailed back and said, are you sure the committee wants me to talk about sex? You know, and, uh, and there are no actions, I guess. Um, I don't want to talk about this topic because that means I just have to process more stuff, and I don't want to really process more stuff. I'm 53 years old, and I really just am fine. Um, um, I, I'm a gay man. We'll get that out of the way real quick. Um, I'm a gay man. I live in West Hollywood, which is the epicenter of gorgeous gay men with great bodies. And I'm a 300-pound fat kid. And I have to deal with that all the time. The 300-pound fat kid. Even though I know today I'm not 300 pounds, there are thoughts that came from being Carol the Barrel in high school. There are thoughts that comes from being ostracized in, high, in, in my school and childhood. I come from a dysfunctional family. So I, didn't, I went, wasn't taught lessons to learn, or I wasn't taught how to deal with life and life's terms. I learned how to use food to take away the hurt. I learned, to, I learned how to use food to take away the thoughts. The problem is I knew from a very early age that I was gay. I had, there was, I mean, it wasn't the term gay. I just wanted to play cowboys 
you know, that, that was what I wanted to do. I just wanted to be cowboys and ride the range. And as I matured and went through puberty, which I blame the fact that I was attracted to boys, because um, I ain't gone through puberty yet. Though I had armpit hair and, you know, I was, I was past puberty, but, you know, pre-progressive boys, it's okay to play with together. So I knew I was raised Southern Baptist, so I knew how horrible I was. I knew how I was an abomination. And I hated myself. Not only did I hate myself because I was 300 pounds, but I hated myself for those thoughts. And I was also, at 300 pounds, I was also very uncoordinated because I was still out of touch with my body. So I was uncoordinated, so therefore I was get, I was, you know, I was a fag because I couldn't screw in a screwdriver. Of course, it wasn't, had nothing to do with being gay. It had to do with the fact that at 300 pounds, I was so out of touch with my body that I could not do coordination things. And I, I've since learned that. I choose not to screw in a screwdriver right now. I choose not to, but I can. Um, the, so I, I had this vision or this thought that, that and I grew up in, this, in the 60s, so I grew up with free love. And, and I had this thought that there was a roll call every morning. And every morning there was just some type of like this roll call that said, Tommy, did you have sex last night? And Tommy said, yes, I did. Sarah, did you have sex last night? Yes, I did. Billy, did you have sex last night? Yes, I did. Terrell, did you have sex last night? No. Well, Terrell, I don't know your name's on the list. We should just take it off the list. Fat boy, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. You don't belong on this list. So I don't get to participate in sexuality. I don't get to participate because, first off, the sexuality that I want to do was wrong. Second off, I was fat. So that is where I came from. That is my, that's where I walked around high school with my head bowed because I wasn't going to curse you with my presence. Well, if I'm not going to curse you with my presence, I'm definitely not going to sleep with you. Though I'd walk home from school hoping someone would pick me up. Because I am, once again, I am a sexual being. Um, I came out in college, and I had that obsessive nature where I went around to everyone to see if it was okay if they thought I was gay. Because we are that, we are that. If it's, I had to make sure it was okay with everyone else to be gay, for me to be gay, before I could come out. And finally, someone said to me, Charles, what difference does it make? You don't have to decide today. And that's what made, gave me freedom, was I didn't make a decision today. Whether I was gay or straight, I just had to, you know, live the day. Um, I, um, the, I came to the program the first time when I was 17. I lost 125 pounds in five months um, in this program. The... I didn't deal with things that made me seek excess food. I didn't deal with the causes, and that's what this program is so wonderful about. It says, we're not going to give you a diet. We're not going to give you a food plan. We're going to help you deal with those things that make you seek excess food. And one of the reasons I was seeking excess food was because of my sexuality. Um, so I came out when I was about 20, and I came back to Overseas Anonymous when I was 23. Now, some of you think it's really wonderful that I got absent at an early age, and, you know, I've been absent over half my life. At Alpha time, doesn't allow you to go out and do some of that fun stuff, Alpha. <laughs> you know. But for, the, for three years after I came out, before I came back to program, I would sit with anyone who would speak with me. Because, see, my, my self-esteem was wrapped up in the fact that you would sleep with me. If you slept with me, then it gave me self-worth which is not a way to seek self-worth. But I would, I mean, I would do, do things that were just not appropriate. 
um, even for a 20-year-old or 21-year-old or 22-year-old man. Um, when I came to the program, I, I was blessed that I, that one of the reasons why, when I left when I was 17, was because there's nothing but housewives in the meetings. And I, and I was a, I was a teenage boy, and I also knew that, I also knew that I liked men, and I, I couldn't share that. That was one of the reasons why I left program, was because I cannot talk about my sexual feelings in a fourth step, because I know that my, whoever heard it, would run out of the room. And would, like, then I once again, now I'd be ostracized for being fat, I'd be ostracized for being gay, and I was no longer welcome in Overeaters Anonymous. The problem is, food had a different idea. Food beat me up so badly. And as a lot of you know my story, I was going to sacrifice my eyesight for chocolate. When a doctor told me to be going within a year, I perceived 130 pounds in six weeks. No, and thinking that I can still see. When things start to go great, that's when I'll stop. And that's where my disease takes me. Um, so food had, no, had another idea for me. And basically it was that I had to come back to program. I had to come back to over and And I had the last house on the block at age 23. In many ways, that had screwed up my sex life. <laughs> because, see, from the beginning, I learned. Now, when I was 23 and I came back to program, once you know it, there was like six meetings a night, or six meetings a week at the Gay and Lesbian Community Service Center. So there went that excuse, that I, had, I could go to a room full of gay people and talk and not be afraid of what straight people were thinking. Not be afraid of the, uh, the housewives. So I could go there. And in these rooms, I heard men talk about how they, I'll uh, use the term, they bottomed, because that way they could, they could it, was, it, it made it so that they were giving to their partner and they would not be demanding. And they made sure that their partner was taken care of and they would not be concerned about their needs. Because if I can take care of your needs, if you're satisfied, then, then you will maybe ask me back one more time. As opposed to standing for what, this is what I like to do, this is what I want to do. It was literally was, it was about, let's make you happy. And if you become happy, then I can rest some satisfaction of maybe being needed that way. So I was taught at an early age in these rooms about that you don't go for sex when you're in a sexual relationship. It's not, don't make it about them. You make it about you. You, you get what you need. But also be aware there's a partner in the room. <laughs> But in a second, it's not like you can't make it like, what do you want to do? Well, what do you want to do now? What do you want to do now? <laughs> and I've been with men like that, and it's the most boring thing in the world. Mm-hmm. Like, bring something to the table. Um, in my second year of abstinence, I was so healthy that I got involved with Relate and, and had the first man move in, to, move in with me. He was uh, maybe three months sober, maybe, maybe a little less. I had a little over a year of absence, so we had program in common. It was wonderful. <laughs> and I always say, if, baby, if, you want an, if you're in your first year or second year of, of, of abstinence and you're pining away for a relationship and, oh, I wonder what it will be, I understand the need for high drama in my life. I understand that need. I cut my hand taking the knife away from, trying to get the knife away from my partner because he was going to slash the sofa because he was that, because he was that angry at me because I wouldn't let him, I didn't let him use the credit cards to run up more debt when there was boxes laying around that had not been opened. But see, he said three words to me. He said, Bear, that was my nickname. He said, Bear, I love you, I want you, and here was the hook, I need you. 
And that was the hook that got me. Now, she would tell me that I was the best thing ever, uh, he was the best thing ever happened to me, that I was too fat, that I couldn't get other men. Now, I weighed 165, 170 pounds. 30 pounds less than I weigh now. But I was too fat. I, um, I looked at him one time after he said that, and I said, no good. You've used that big gun one time too many. One time too many. Now, the reason I, I got involved with this man was because he was an ex-hooker. Or, I should say, kept man. And he was giving it to me for free. So that gave me worth and value. Because someone used to pay him for that. So, now, I want you to know that I was not well when I came in the doors of Overstomus. <laughs> I have to continue to express how sick I was. So you folks realize that it wasn't that just some happenstance that the turtle that you see is the turtle that walked in the doors. The turtle that you see was because I worked a 12-step program, because I worked on, on building up who I am. Um, I went through a lot. I mean, I, I, I basically left that now, and I got well enough, when I realized that I was such a martyr that that's the reason why I was staying. You know, that I was, I mean, I had to go through this. This when I learned that one of my favorite sayings in the program is you can walk through the fire tonight or you can walk through the fire in the morning. But that's where I've learned. And I, I said after that, I have no more divorces in me. And the best way not to have a divorce is not to have a marriage. So that was, that was my last live-in lover. So, uh, you know, is that, am I being protective? Am I being, who knows? Uh, several years ago, I went into therapy. Well, about seven years ago, I went to therapy. And the insurance company asked me why. And I said, well, I'm like in my early, mid-40s. I only had one short, long uh, live-in relationship, so I don't know if I'm too sick or too healthy to be in a relationship. My, well, my dearest, dearest friends in Los Angeles said it's because I'm very powerful and very strong, that it would take an amazing man to bring it, to come into my life. Maybe. My therapist is trying to, is trying to keep me from going black and white. Is it either or? Is it because I'm too sick or is it because I'm too healthy? And I mean, I've dated and stuff like that, but then often it's like I might get bored or I, start, I tried dating a guy a couple of years ago or maybe a year and a half ago, and it was no spark and no fire. And I'm thinking, well, it's me. I'm, it's because of me and my issues. I'm, it's my issues and, and, you know, it's, it's just me. And he came to me after about six weeks and said, there's no spark here. And I went, oh, thank God I'm not crazy. But see, that's where we go, where we go like, okay, it's about me, it's about me. Now, that after 30 years, I should have that, li- I have that little voice. I know that when that little voice comes, it said, this is not right. This is not right. I have to listen to that little voice. If I don't listen to the little voice, then I become the prostitute. I'm just whoring myself out. Regardless of, it doesn't matter if there's 10 men in the room or one man in the room. If I hear that little voice that says, this is wrong, this is, and not the voice that goes like, oh, God, oh, God. No, the little voice that says, why? Why are you doing this? You've come too far to be in this situation. So I have to listen to that little voice. When I call it God's voice, whatever. I'm totally clear about promiscuity. Promiscuity has nothing to do with that, with that, like I said, about how many men. It has to do with, is it, do I hear that small, still voice? If I hear that small, still voice that says, it's okay, it's okay. Now, I've had sex, a lot of sex, a lot of sex in a lot of different places and a lot of different ways. It's interesting because I used to feel guilty about the big book. 
you know, because I'm thinking like, oh, well, geez, you know, was it honest? Well, I don't know his name. Do I, I mean, do I, do I know a man to him because I didn't know his name? Do, what, what? And then I realized if he was there and I was there, we were in the same room at the same time, and there was no lying or manipulating, which is always a little bit of manipulation going on because you're always kind of like, well, like, well, you anyway. There's, but there's always, you know, there's always a little of that, of that, like, well, yeah, it's Sunday night. Sure, you want to come over to my place? No, you don't. I'm like, you sure you don't? You know, okay, yeah, let's do it. You know, but there's that always that. Um, so I, I read that and I thought, oh, geez, I can't really. Oh, no, can't. But it really comes down to, was I honest? Now, I need to be positive. So I've been positive for years. So that's one way I have to be honest. Be honest about, about my, my status. Because it's, it's what, we, what I do. It's who, I mean, this program has taught me that's what, how I behave. Um, it's, it's really amazing because it's like I hate talking about sex. And I do these retreats. I do these retreats. And Saturday night we're supposed to talk about sex. And I try like hell to get away from talking about sex. I'd rather talk about sex eight and nine. <laughs> I'd rather talk about, I don't know, body image, you know. But that's where sexuality, because see, it's one of those things where since I don't have a relationship, there must be something wrong with me. And I, you know, I've, I've worked on this a lot. And maybe some people out in this room understand about being single and trying to make it okay to be single. Now, I am very clear that I cannot be single and I cannot be married at the same time. So if I'm single, I better enjoy being single because once I get in a relationship, then I'm going to be in that relationship. And people try to be single and in a relationship at the same time. We just had a governor who just went to Argentina trying to be at the two at the same time. It, it can't operate the same space. So I've learned to be single. I've learned to be single and appreciate being single. And I love being single. Now, but I live in West Hollywood where the number of sex partners sometimes is a badge of, badge of honor. And I get to be the guy that goes, not that interested. Because what's one thing, this program has so screwed up my sex life. <laughs> this program taught me to take God to bed. This program has taught me to look at my sex partner as another loving child of God. And it's really hard to ask someone over. It really is hard to screw someone over, to be an asshole to, to a loving child of God, whether they're in my bed or whether they're across the checkout counter in the grocery store. So thank you, folks. For I mean, I could have had a lot more sex because of you. Now, probably I've had better sex because you know there's online sex. I mean, we we kind of started this as gays. We kind of started the whole line and sex and dating and all that stuff. So you know, but that doesn't interest me. And my friends are kind of got it because they go like, "You're just too tactile." And I go, "Yeah, I need to see the sparkle in the eye. I need to see the personality." Now, nothing against my friends who are on the online dating, online sex sites, but that's where I go like. Okay, this is who I am. And what this program has enabled me to do by taking my own inventory is to say this is who I am sexually in relationship-wise that I don't have to go out there and sleep with 10 men this weekend to prove that I'm okay. This last year, I've been having, I had a hip problem and I got news for you. If your hip is bad, the last thing you want to do is do a bump and grind. You know? <laughs> So I gave up. I gave up sex. I mean, I became conscious of the fact that it was like, I'm going to have to. So it's like one of those things that was, there was freedom there. Freedom. 
You know, the thing is, it's also fun now when I look at this, I go, do, do I want you in my life? What do you bring to my life? Because I'm a very full, rich life. Thank you very much to a 12-step program. Because I now look at my friends. One of the greatest gifts my sister ever gave me, it was Valentine's Day, and I was complaining. I never have a Valentine and Valentine's Day. I never have a Valentine and Valentine's Day. I never had a Valentine card sent to me, you know, from someone that loves me. And my sister looked at me, and I was living with her and my, and my nephew at the time, and she said, look, I'm just right in front of you. You've got your, your sister and your nephew who loves you. Will you be our Valentine? And so that's where I've learned in this program, that I, it's not about looking to exterior things to make me okay. One day I was at a meeting, a big meeting in Los Angeles, and all these women were getting up and talking about how they gifted the program. Gifts of the program, uh, the gifts of the program, and they got married. Gifts of the program, they got married. <laughs> well, once you know it, I had to get up and be the contrarian and go like, you know what? This program never promised me marriage. This program never promised me sex. This program pro- promised me sanity and serenity. Sanity and serenity. That's what it promised me. So, if I'm looking to sex for sanity and serenity... I'm looking in the wrong place. Now, will I have sex again? Probably. You know? But is it the most important thing? Now, once again, there's a big difference between a 23-year-old boy and a 53-year-old man. The sex drive goes. So, my ex-sponsor, God bless her, she's 85 and got dementia. And she's got a sex drive that will not stop. (laughs) She now thinks I'm her husband and she talks about having one to have sex with me. Which I've got to sit there and listen to it. Which is not the most creepiest thing you've ever been through, but it is something that you do because that's who we are. We, we do this because of love. So, it's this whole thing wrapped up in sexuality and sex, it's like one of those things where, like, if you need it too much, you need to write an inventory. If you don't want it too much, you need to write an inventory. It's one of those things where we just live life today. If I'm trying to put all this emphasis on, well, you know, you're my first sex partner in 18 months, and what does this mean? And you may, you're going to be the one, you know, then, then how much fun am I going to be? But if I'm living life and going like, okay, right here, right now, I invite you to my bed. Right here, right now, I invite you to my bed. doesn't mean that tomorrow is going to bring, or what, the 10 years, or 20 years, or 30 years, the past that came before you. But right here, right now, if I make it about you and me in this bed together, then it'll be an amazing event. But if I make it about what does tomorrow bring, or if I make it about all those men that have ever fucked me over, all those guys that never called back, guess what? You're an asshole that just came to my bed. And I'm going to treat you like an asshole in my bed. So one thing this program has taught me is taught me to be present and current in the moment with the man I'm with. Not the man I want him to be, not the man I wish he was, not all the men before, and not all the men in the future, but the man that's in my bed right here, right now. And when I can focus on that, it's an amazing sexual experience. Thanks for letting me share. Wow, thanks, Carol and uh, Corey. Really wonderful. I just want to tell you quickly, I found that uh, James Serber quote. 
It says, while the urge to eat is a personal matter concerning only the hungry person, the sex urge involves another individual. It is this other person that causes all the trouble. <laughs> so I have a bunch of those. If you want to leave me your email address, I'll send, I'll send you a bunch of those quotes. Uh, we kind of started late. I don't know what to do about maybe can we have one question for each person? How about that? Why don't we just do that? Okay, so would someone like to just speak up from the floor with one question? Okay, I don't know how to, t I'd have to read every one to find out which is what. Oh, just either, okay. How do you get that connection from mind-body to begin the sexual process? <laughs> yeah, they are. I did speak about that. Well, how do you get the mind-body connection? You can trust whatever mind-body connection is happening if you are keeping that body half full. If you're lard-laden and sugar-coated, it's been my experience, I cannot trust my instincts, and I can't trust that I'm on the right beam. Uh, I like to say I put down my fork to become one, to become a tuning fork. So, again, abstinence is the primary tool. Abstinence is a tool, not a goal. So that's my answer. Um, thank you. Okay, now for someone else, please. I would like to hear about lack of interest in sex. Um, cannot read that. Uh, despite being with a partner I love, I am angry. I think that's what they're saying. So, how about lack of interest? Speak to lack of interest, Corey. Um, all right. Of course. Um, lack of interest in sex. Well, I mean, I think the, the, what I can tell you from my experience about lack of interest is that um, we talk about it. Like, I've, I, I've asked my partner, you know, does it affect you that, that I, I don't know, that lately I haven't been feeling as sexual? And then we just dialogue about it. I think like anything else, um, you know, I, I want to dialogue and see how it's affecting the relationship. And I think I, I love what, what was said about, if, if I'm if I'm craving too much of something, I need to write an inventory. And if if it's you know if I'm not craving it at all, I need to write an inventory. And somewhere in there, sometimes my life just gets really busy, or um, there are things that happen, or I've got stuff going on, or I've, you know I've got other things that I'm dealing with. And for me right now, I just came off of a really insanely crazy week, and sex it was probably the last thing on my mind. Um, in the middle of this insanely crazy week, I was trying to manage my stress and my shoulders, and I, I don't know. I mean, I just my experience is we just dialogue about that, and I don't, I don't have any tips for getting over it, but I think just being in it is really what, what we're taught is just sort of to be where we are. So. Thank you, Daryl. You may come up here and choose one of these. I'm not going to choose it for you. <laughs> I start cross-dressing when I lose weight. I think I stay fat to avoid this problem. Any ideas? Cross-dress. I mean, that's, I mean, I, I ate so that I would not come out of the closet. I ate to stop feeling. It's one of those things where we, if, once you put the food down, and once you get abstinent for a year, you might not want to cross-dress. You might want to. 
but it's like one of the people talk to me all the time, like, I'm scared of being thin. I, I'm, I, you know, I've got this whole thing about I'm afraid of being thin, so I say that. I'm going, well, you're not thin today. So what are you afraid of? So you don't even know what you're afraid of. That's one thing after 30 years of absence. I cannot even tell you what you're going to go through, what feelings you're going to have, what fears are going to come up, all the living life. But if I were sat there 30 years ago, like, I don't know if I can go to Ontario and speak at a sex workshop. I better just eat this donut. <laughs> you know? I don't know if I can deal with my sister being dead. I'll just eat here. I don't know if I can deal with being, you know, at go away. What? Live today. And if today you want to put on a cross dress, you know, dress as a boy, or dress as a girl, whatever. So, I come from West Hollywood. We have lots of those there. So, it's like one of those things where, what? Dress. Cross dress. And if it becomes more, it might be, like I said, my ex, my first sponsor died a, a woman. He was a man when he was my sponsor. Died a woman. So, What? What? He taught me more about God. What? Thank you all. This has been wonderful. Um, we will now have open sharing. No, we won't. Now time to close this workshop. Please join me in a moment of silence, followed by the third step prayer. Okay. Okay. God, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. Thank you. Keep coming back. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.